Hello and welcome to Archimedes, the evidence-based clinical questions podcast from the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. As I'm sure you're aware, Archimedes is the section of the Archives where clinicians take real clinical questions, go away and look at the clinical research that might answer those, appraise that and then bring it back and put it into context and talk about how that will influence how they care for children. Now, I'm sure that many of you have hospitals full of bronchiolytic infants. Little, tiny, snotty, wheezy things splitting and spluttering, not drinking very well and causing everybody a great deal of distress, with exhausted parents, tired nurses and junior doctors possibly suffering from very similar conditions and getting sent home by anybody that's ever worked in infection control. And the problem of bronchiolitis, whilst being deeply annoying, is also very worrying for parents and can be associated with poor, indeed sometimes fatal, outcomes. Of course, with effective supportive care, largely management of oxygenation, nutrition and hydration, babies with bronchiolitis are highly unlikely to suffer severe consequences. But as babies become increasingly sick, there is a question about what's the right way to support them. And in Archimedes this month, both of our clinical topics refer to bronchiolitis. Firstly, Drs Furness, Singh and Timian at Darlington Hospital in the UK, which is a district general hospital that doesn't have a paediatric intensive care unit on site, asked the question about a sickening infant with increasing respiratory distress and low oxygen saturations about what they should do in order to try to mitigate a transfer to the paediatric intensive care unit. Their particular question relates to whether CPAP will reduce the need for endotracheal intubation. The team went away and looked at three different search engines, including Medline, Embase and Synout, and came back with 24 different hits. Many of these were replicated, but all of them were found on Medline. They went through this and selected seven for full text assessment and went through the references of there and found an extra study and finally got five studies to be included in their summary. This included one randomised control trials, one well-constructed retrospective cohort and three case series. The RCT was very focused on physiological outcomes but showed that there were reduced rates of CO2 retention and reduced work of breathing when CPAP was used compared with normal oxygen and supportive care. The cohort study and indeed the case series all showed similarly that the use of CPAP reduced the work of breathing that was seen in the infants and when compared to historical data showed that around about 60% of the babies placed on CPAP did not require intubation. And these were babies that were at or requiring intensive care and where the intubation rates would have previously been up in the high 90%. So the team here concluded that there is some supportive evidence that CPAP avoids ventilation. But they also leave us with a further question, and that is that while CPAP has been around for a bit and might well reduce rates of intubation, there's also high-flow nasal cannula oxygen, and that too might reduce the need for endotracheal intubation. It happens that, at the same point that we have an Archimedes dealing with CPAP, we also have one submitted from Dr Nyber of the Beatrix Children's Hospital in Groening in the Netherlands regarding the question as to whether high-flow nasal cannula oxygen reduced the need for endotracheal intubation in babies with bronchiolitis. 
Now the group here looked at two different databases including Medline and came back with 57 potential articles and then ran that down to four that looked almost certainly relevant but one was a narrative review leaving just three studies to examine. These were all observational studies, there were no randomised controlled trials and all of them were based on paediatric intensive care units. Each of these studies did show that the use of high-flow nasal cannula oxygen did seem to reduce the rates of endotracheal intubation, but around two-thirds of them did seem to have very high rates of endotracheal intubation in the time period before they commenced the use of high-flow, and the authors are concerned that this may produce a slightly biased estimate of how effective the high-flow nasal cannula are in reducing the need for intubation. There's also, in two of the studies, lack of a very clear algorithm as to when you would move to intubate. And this leads to a potential bias in these studies, as with the CPAP studies, that with something that the authors or the clinicians involved believe might well be an airway support mechanism, they might be a bit braver and hold off from intubating a child that if they didn't have that, they would have moved in on earlier. So what we're seeing isn't so much an effect of the device itself, but an effect of the improved confidence that the clinicians feel because of the device. However, the third study did have a very clear algorithm that described when endotracheal intubation was undertaken, and this also showed a reduction in intubation rates. Now, there are no trials reported, although there are a couple of trials ongoing with high-flow nasal cannula oxygen, to see mainly if it looks like it reduces physiological variables like work of breathing or administrative things like length of stay. But pending that, the authors of this second paper believe that there is some evidence to support the idea that high-flow nasal cannula can produce a reduction in the need for intubation and that it probably does this by producing PEEP and physiological studies have shown that the nasopharynx certainly has similar levels of PEEP and possibly even without a very, very tight fitting of the mask uh, in these cannulas. And possibly even without a very tight fitting mask and some leak and there's still appreciable PEEP and a benefit for the infants with bronchiolitis. In addition to our two bronchioletic clinical queries, we've also got this month uh, an Archimedes that concerns the assessment of devices. Now, it's really hard to persuade people that devices need evaluation in the same way that drugs do. Partly this might be due to the, the physical nature of it. You can see a thing and you can see how the thing is working, unlike a drug which has some sort of mystical thing that happens inside a body. Or it might be that legally, at least in the UK, devices don't need to have the same degree of investigation before going on the market that drugs do. Or it might be that combining these two things together, plus the fact that devices often lead you to see something very obvious, like a, a respiratory rate going down or a, or a saturation going up when you place a special breathing mask on a baby, that they don't get on to evaluate them in full-on randomised controlled trials. An example of this is a device which takes special weight-bearing x-rays of the spine for scoliosis assessment, and in doing that it provides a lower radiation dose than using a CT scanner. It's a very expensive machine, 
and the evaluations which have been undertaken of it have been subject to a health technology assessment review. These evaluations establish very clearly that it is a technical success. It is anatomically and physiologically correct. But what they don't do is go on to assess if using this system makes an important difference to patients. Of course, whilst this is common in the examination of devices and the examination of diagnostic tests, it isn't exclusive and there are many drug studies that use surrogate outcomes or outcomes which are physiological rather than patient centres. We should be aware that if you have got patient-centred outcomes, you know what the answer is. You know what it means to patients. And the further we step away from that, the more that we're hoping that these things remain physiologically linked. For example, and some of you getting a little bit older and worrying about death might be thinking around your risk of heart attack. Well, HDL cholesterol is certainly linked to a risk of heart attack and a risk of death and I think a risk of stroke as well. But if you change the HDL cholesterol levels pharmacologically, that in itself doesn't lead to a change in whether or not you're going to die of a heart attack. So whilst we know that some surrogate outcomes are very firm, other surrogate outcomes are less firm. And we need to be aware of this not just in drugs, but also when we look at the assessment of devices. So, that's the end of the Archimedes podcast for this month. Please, don't worry too much about having a heart attack. Just stop smoking, exercise regularly, and eat sensibly. That'll be good for you all. And, in the meantime, while you're doing all of those things, why don't you tweet us at ADC underscore BMJ and tell us what you think of these podcasts, what you'd like to hear more of, what you might like to hear differently, and anything about Archimedes or the ADC in general. We look forward to hearing from you soon. And just one last little question. Is it still bronchiolitis season in Australia? Or if it's warm, do you not get bronchiolitis down there? Anyway, I look forward to hearing from you with the answer to that and any other questions that you have. And speaking to you again soon.